0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 124 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we're going to start straight away with a bunch of thank yous. We have two more Patreon donors, Woo-hoo! Laura and Tina. Thank you, Laura and Tina. Yeah, thank you so much. And then we also want to announce, drum roll. Our longest subscriber is having an anniversary. We've been, we've had a Patreon page since February of 2018. And Deb from Chicago has been our longest Patreon sponsor. And we thank you very much, Deb.
1: Thank you so much, Deb. It's been such an honor to have you as a listener for so long and as a financial contributor. We so appreciate it.
0: We really do. Thank you so much. And then we also had a PayPal donation from Anna across the pond. (laughs) Thank you so much, Anna.
1: Thank you, Anna.
0: And she sent the best email talking about going on, you know, how she misses Biblio adventures too, and that she, the last one she went on, she went to a bookstore that had a ginger cake bakery next door, and she thinks she ate more cake than book shopping. And, you know, (laughs) I said, oh, well, then you definitely should sponsor the book, Cougars. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Totally. We're all uh, peas in a pod. Yes.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: So at the end of this episode, we have an interview.
0: Right. With Dr. Charlotte Markey. Her book is called The Body Image Book for Girls. Love Yourself and Grow Up Fearless. Really great book. So we are excited to talk to her and share that interview with you.
1: Yes, for sure. And then another special announcement at the end of this episode is going to be our second quarter read along. Yeah, we're going to have a special joint read along again, with Jenny over at Reading Envy. So you'll have um, two books for the price of one read along, which is, of course, free.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) We love our prices here. (laughs) So so listen up on this episode. and, And we'll we'll get to that announcement later in the episode.
1: Yep absolutely. So I wanted to start today with a poem. I have been reading the Connecticut Literary Anthology 2020, which um, came out from Central Connecticut State University, they sent me a review copy. So I've been reading in it a little bit each day. And I thought I'd share this poem, because you're a foodie. And Mm. I really love the poem. It's called Mulling Spices. By Sitara Nanaguru Mulling Spices I don't really cook, yet I crave to paint the palette with a palette of spices, master my native cuisine. I hunger for Amachi's taste and talent in the kitchen, to know just how to stir the pot until the aroma awakens the sleeper within. A girl in tune with her tamal roots who won't mask her ethnicity with quiet, unassuming blandness. I'm desperate to feed my lack, satisfy my memory, nourish my soul. If home cooking is a kind of magic, and recipes are spells, then let saffron stain my disposition sunny. Turmeric trigger tenacity. Clove, cinnamon, and cardamom massage enough sweetness to temper tamarind. And bay leaf be a balm, bringing it all home, lest I lose my way. I'll leave myself a trail of mustard seeds and black peppercorns.
0: Oh, I love that! Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm kind of salivating too. It like all of the the imagery and the taste in there. That was lovely. Thank you.
1: Well, let's jump into currently reading. What are you currently reading, Emily?
0: Well, this is a perfect segue. I am reading, thank you to the publisher, Fadon, for sending me a copy of this book. It's called Today's Special, 20 Leading Chefs Choose 100 Emerging Chefs. This is a big hunkster of a book. I put a picture up on our social media, so check it out. I was trying to take a selfie, and I couldn't. I had to call in the gentleman caller. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's such a great photo, because you almost look like a little kid, sitting in a grown-up chair, with, you know, like a big picture book. It's adorable.
0: It and it is a big picture book. It has over 500 images and 300 recipes. Wow. It is beautiful. And I just I'm going to be, you know, this is going to be a currently reading book for me probably for the rest of 2021. I'm just going to have it around and pick it up and read it a little bit at a time. But um strongly recommend this book for foodies out there who are looking for a, a nice coffee table book. Again, it's called Today's Special, 20 Leading Chefs Choose 100 Emerging Chefs.
1: Nice. I, I look forward to peeking into that book when we can get together again in person. Yeah. So, as I said, I've been reading the literary anthology, the Connecticut Literary Anthology, and I just want to toss out there, too, that they are currently accepting submissions for their 2021 anthology, so you do have to be a Connecticut resident. Uh, We'll put a link in the show notes for all you Connecticut writers out there who may not be aware of this opportunity to submit your writing. Um, But the other thing I'm reading, oh my gosh, I feel like I need to do a drum roll on this one. It's The Drowning Kind by Jennifer McMahon, her forthcoming Mm. novel. (laughs) So this doesn't come out until April 6th, but put it on your reading list now, everybody, because it is excellent so far. I'm only at the 30% mark. I've been reading a little bit before bed two nights in a row, and she's kept me way beyond my bedtime. (laughs) Um, It's coming out from Gallery Scout Press and thanks to NetGalley for the advanced reader copy. So this was the book that Jennifer McMahon talked about on that Biblio adventure where we went up to Northshire where she was in conversation with Simone St. James, whose sundown motel had just come out. So Jennifer was in the process of writing this novel, which is now coming out this spring, The Drowning Kind, and it is about a creepy swimming pool.
0: Right. I remember her talking about that, that there really was a creepy swimming pool in her past.
1: Yes. <laughs> and so everyone in that audience is kind of like, ooh. So it's really good, I have to say. It, it's it, kind of a dual time frame. It's late 1920s and then contemporary. And the the 1920s is kind of like a, a little bit of backstory in some ways to what's going on now. The main character is a social worker who is living in Seattle, the other side of the country from where she grew up in Massachusetts and where Grandma's house is in Vermont? Her sister, who she was pretty close with as a kid, there is a three year difference between them, inherited Grandma's house where the pool is. And it's a naturally fed spring that feeds this pool. The sister inherits the house like i said and i guess that's probably all i should say at this point it's a mystery like you know it's creepy horror mystery like you don't know what's going on and somebody one of the blurbs i had read compared jennifer mcmahon you know to shirley jackson like saying that she's the inheritor of shirley jackson vermont creepiness
0: yeah maybe living there rubs off on you
1: right (laughs) Again, that's The Drowning Kind coming out April 6th. It's by Jennifer McMahon. Put it on your reading, reading list now. I'm sure I'll, be, I'll talk about it more in the next episode. Again, though, it might be one of those books that it's hard to talk about because you don't want to give any spoilers. Right. Because yeah. just the way things are unfolding now, it's really kind of cool.
0: I know just hearing you talk about it, I'm having all these images of creepy things coming in from the spring-fed water and, you know, all that. So I don't know. That's just my imagination running wild. I'm also reading Oak Flat, A Fight for Sacred Land in the American West by Lauren Redness. This is a graphic novel, but it's a, it's a graphic novel that's non-fiction, journalistic just beautifully drawn. I actually um, posted a picture of this on social media and the artist responded. And I said, I have to ask you, what did you use for the artwork? Was it pastels? Was it colored pencils? And she said it was colored pencils and the pictures are just beautiful. And um, it's a, it's a look at what is a continuing fight for over land in Arizona that is historically Apache land. And many years ago, it was discovered that underneath this land was one of the biggest copper reserves ever found. And so the federal government got involved, a copper mining company got involved. And the book weaves in and out um, stories about both an uh, Apache family and a family that is part of the mine. And then just takes us on a historical journey about, you know, how it all was discovered and the importance of copper to our country, how people or the world, I should say how people use copper. It's fantastic. And it's hilarious, because I actually got this out for the gentleman caller. And there's, you know, we have a ridiculous number of books on the coffee table. And I did an intervention over the weekend and started collecting all of my (laughs) books because it's an embarrassment of riches. And I unearthed this one that I had gotten out of the library for him. And I just on Sunday, I just settled down with it and felt absolutely involved and engrossed in the story. So Highly recommend. It's beautiful. Again, Oak Flat, A Fight for Sacred Land in the American West by Lauren Redness. Sounds great. It's really good. Let's move on then to Just Read. I just read a book that's coming out on March 9th. So just a week after this episode airs. It's called The Little French Bridal Shop by Jennifer Dupuy. And I have to say, if I were giving awards for the most misleading title and the most misleading cover for a book, this would win both of those awards. Oh, my. (laughs) So I just want to let people know, like, there's more, in this case, don't judge a book by its cover, for sure. Um, this book has a lot of hearts. It's Jennifer's debut novel. It has lots of autobiographical parts. Jennifer grew up north of Boston. She had an affinity for big kind of rambling houses. She always wanted to grow up and renovate and live in a big home. And this book is about a young woman, Larissa, who is coming home, to the small town she was raised in. Her aunt owns a big rambling house called Elmhurst. Her aunt has passed away. So Larissa's coming thinking, oh, she's probably going to renovate it, do a little bit of handiwork on it, and then maybe sell it. As she's coming back to town, she steps into the local bridal shop and on a whim purchases a wedding dress. No wedding plans in sight. (laughs) But as small towns Happen to be the rumors start to spread that she's getting married and she just kind of goes with it. So that's one arc of the storyline. And and in that, then the idea of how rumors spread in small towns, I thought I would just read this little passage of when a bunch of townsfolk are together. And this was her, her she's thinking back on this aunt that passed away in a conversation. And her aunt said, this town is full of people making shit chats. Aunt Ursula would say. You mean chit-chat, the family would correct her. No, she meant idle shit-chat. The funeral reception had been nothing but commentary on the weather, the newly paved roads, the traffic light that had finally been put in at Four Corners, and even some actual shit-chat about the new septic system going in under the library. So that's an example of, you know, <laughs> the things you have to talk to talk about in a small town. So, you know, the, but the point is, you know, the, the book's called The Little French Bridal Shop. But the story is actually about a lot more than this one scene where she steps into the bridal shop and purchases this wedding dress. It's split up into three sections, fall, winter and spring. And it really is about Larissa's awakening. So I love how, you know, you're slowly moving into the part titled Spring Her parents were, you know, the parents with the perfect marriage, that loved each other traveled together. And now her mother is suffering from dementia. So there is really an arc of the book about that trigger warning for people that you know, that might might find that upsetting. Jennifer, when she's talking about the autobiographical parts of this book, it a lot of the reason she wrote this book was to deal with her own grief about her mother and her mother's illness and suffering from dementia. So I really liked it a lot. And like I said, it surprised me when I was reading it. So I highly recommend that people give it a try. The themes are marriage. Finding oneself, coming to terms with a parent's dementia, small towns and things like that, and then the renovation of this rambling house, so called Elmhurst. the little French bridal shop by Jennifer Dupe coming out March 9th.
1: So is the cover kind of like does it look like
0: a cozy Here, yeah or what I'll show is it the... to you? It's like a little okay. you know patio set of chairs in front of a bridal shop with a wedding dress. Which isn't it's a beautiful cover. I love the cover it's just it wasn't really about the bridal shop. What did you just read?
1: Well, I just finished L- a Little Comfort by Edwin Hill, and that was the mystery novel I was reading last time that was recommended to m- to me well, to all of us by John Valeri in a past episode in a recent episode, I should say, and so this is the first book in the Hester Thurby mystery series and hester is a research librarian at harvard who specializes in finding missing missing people on her off hours i should say that's not her job (laughs) at the library Um, but as a research librarian she knows how to find people and has access to all those great databases what was really fun was that there was one of those synchronicity things that happened my latest edition of mystery scene magazine arrived and right on top is an interview with Edwin Hill. Oh, how cool. Yeah, isn't that cool? So um, that was a, a nice interview with him. One of the inspirations for the book was his grandmother, who was a librarian. Edwin had started writing this and wanted to have the focus be on one of the, the male characters in the novel, who's a bit of kind of like a, a sociopath. So that was the main character. But then Hester came along and just stole the show. And now he has this critically acclaimed series that he's writing. It's on its third book now. Um, so I look forward to reading more. I'm definitely gonna uh, pick up more from him because I liked. It's certainly not cozy, but it's not like hardcore violent. Although there is violence and murder happening and murder on the page, even which, you know, on a, in a cozy mystery, the murder's always off the page. Mm-hmm so there there is some gruesome violence, but it's not like over the top not too- not too much blood splatter, not too much, but there is some of that <laughs> <laughs> but i really I felt like it you know it made me feel like I was there, like there are some scenes it's cold, it's winter, it's in Boston and you know, people are going in and out of bars. And it just I could feel, that. you know, I could feel being there. Um, So that was a, a fun read. And thanks to john for recommending it and putting it on my radar. Again, that's Little
0: Comfort by Edwin Hill. Well, we're all definitely using our reading to do some traveling these days. So that's cool. I'm glad you got to visit Boston as well. I just read Milk Fed by Melissa Broder. Thank you to Libro.fm for providing that to me. Reminder that Libro.fm is one of our affiliates. If you sign up for an audiobook subscription with them using Book Cougars, uh, you get two books for the price of one. And they're a wonderful company as well. They're a socially responsible company, which we appreciate and the world appreciates.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we have a link in the show notes. Or you can always just go to their website and put in Book Cougars, one word, and take advantage of that special offer, uh, they do have a really great selection of books and a really nice I think the app interface is really nice and easy to it use. is
0: yeah, and um every time you purchase a book, it helps independent bookstores as well so milk fed by melissa broder i'm I guess I'm kind of late to the party on Melissa Broder. A lot of people know about her she 's a poet. She wrote a book called The Pisces, I think, that was really popular. Again, I did listen to this, and she narrates the book. Serious trigger warning if you have an eating disorder. This book is a lot about a young woman who has an eating disorder, very restrictive eating. Um, She works in the entertainment world in LA. She's at the opening of the book, she's battling a very severe eating disorder, and she goes to a frozen yogurt shop. And she's very specific when she goes about how much you can fill her yogurt container. And there's a young Orthodox man who works at the yogurt shop who's very careful and follows all of her instructions. And then one day, she goes to the yogurt shop and there's someone else behind the counter, the sister the the yogurt shop is owned by Orthodox Jews, but now it's a sister and she completely disregards any of her requests. She's, covers her yogurt with all sorts of temptations, and really just starts to introduce temptation into her world, and makes her revisit and rethink how she looks at the world. And then she falls for her. So it becomes a romance. There's a lot of daydreaming about sexual escapades, and then real encounters with each other. And in the Orthodox faith, that's not okay. Homosexuality isn't okay. So, that's something that then becomes discussed. There's definitely a religious element to this book. Part of why this young woman has such a severe eating dis- disorder is because of her relationship with her mother. So, really, once you get through some of the painful thoughts and conversations about food, it's a book that's about this young woman's learning to individuate from her mother and her family of origin and then also start to investigate her own Judaism because she was raised in a very reformed family. And this family who she starts to be invited into having a relationship with is Orthodox, which creates problems for their relationship, as you might imagine.
1: Yeah, because in the Orthodox faith, one of the main tenets is to reproduce, right? Yeah. Well, that's a heteronormative view, I suppose. Yeah, (laughs) right. Because they want you
0: to reproduce in a certain way, for sure. Mm, So the mm -hmm. theme is a lot about appetites, true appetite with food, sexual appetite, right? There's a lot of food and sex in it. There's a lot of fantasy, longing, trying to figure out your religion, mother issues, need to find your own truth. There was a lot to it, but it was a very uncomfortable book for me to listen to. I definitely forged ahead, you know, but it, it made me uncomfortable. And I feel like, you know, I'm kind of seeking some uncomfortable reads right now, because I think that's good. It's okay to be made uncomfortable. I just want yeah. people to know that is how I felt when I was reading it or listening.
1: <laughs> what is it that made you uncomfortable out of the all of those things you've mentioned?
0: I mean, I think it makes you look at your own world order of eating, first of all. And, you know, I certainly have my own issues around that, both from my family of origin and my current origin. <laughs> so and but to, but to be listening to someone talk about the the amazing amount of restriction they put on themselves. And then also, I mean, it's serious disordered eating you know, and it's, I think it's hard to be a a party to that, you know, a witness to it. So I think it was that I mean, I didn't feel that way about the sex didn't make me feel uncomfortable. I love being, you know, a party to someone's sexual (laughs) fantasies. I think that's kind of fun. You know, (laughs) Uh, I mean, I have I'm Jewish of the Jewish faith. So I have my own experiences and opinions about the heteronormative aspects of the Orthodox faith, which I don't want to get into here. But I mean, it definitely makes you think about that and be aware of it as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so it's yeah. quite a ride. I think that's the best way to say it. <laughs> it's Again, not- it's called Milk Fed by Melissa Broder. Wow, that does sound like quite the ride. You know, if you're out and about, like, you know, even if you go to a bookstore, or if you look at books online a lot, you'll also see that it's it the cover of the book looks like a big nipple to me. I'm sure that's what they meant to do. But just thought I'd put that out there Mm. as well. (laughs) Well,
1: for my next read, it's going to be a ride of a different kind. (laughs) It's a haunted tram car ride is what it is. (laughs) I read The Haunting of Tramcar 015 by P Jelly Clark. Um he's the one who wrote Ring Shout that I love so much last year. Um and this is part of a series. It's the second book in his um Fatma El Shawari series. So it's the second book. I haven't read the first one. <laughs> I need to track the first one down. I think what happened was I think the the second one was the only one available. Uh, where I purchased it, so I just wanted to get started on m- more books by him. It is a novella, technically, so it's a little bit on the shorter side, just over 100 pages or so. It is set in an alternative historical Cairo, Egypt. It's 1912, and just, uh, I guess, in the first book in the series, somebody erased the barrier between the human world And the spiritual world, the spiritual magical realm, I should say. So there's all these magical creatures and powers and stuff now in 1912. So the main character, he's an agent, Agent Hamed Nassar. He's partnered with a newbie, which he's kind of resistant to, this whole idea of having a partner. He likes to work on his own. The new agent is Ansi Yosef is his name. They are agents for the ministry of alchemy enchantments and supernatural entities so they are there to kind of control things that get out of control on the magic side of things and they're called by the transportation department that there's a haunting in this tram car that's a violent haunting like it assaulted a woman and so they've taking the tram car out of commission. And now it's not like your normal tram car in boring human terms. Like it's running on magic and all these different routes. And there are these different types of creatures that I don't want to go into great detail about because it's fun to discover them along with their main mission to solve this haunting. There's also the women are agitating to get the vote. It was a fun read. So again, that was The Haunting of Tramcar Car 015 by P. Jelly Clark, out now. And the third book in this series is coming out in
0: March, I believe. Oh, great. So people could really start back on the first book and have a, you know, a good series to get through. That sounds great. And you got to do some more traveling again, too. How fun.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't read a lot of fantasy and that... Reading Ring Shout last year made me realize I wanted to, to read more and uh, give it a try again. Because in my younger years, I did read some fantasy, um, but I kind of got away from it. Yeah,
0: me too. That sounds great. I need to check him out. Thank you for reminding me about him. I read With Teeth by Kristen Arnett. This book doesn't come out until June 1st, but that's not that far away. Kristen Arnett is a queer writer from Florida, and she's really well known already from her debut, which came out last year, I believe, called Mostly Dead Things, which has a taxidermy theme, (laughs) which that's the title, that's the title. But With Teeth is a novel about two moms that are married with a very difficult son And the opening scene of this book, the stay-at-home mother is with the son at the playground. She turns her head for a moment and she sees her son walking out of the park with a man to like the infamous white van and she runs and she goes and gets her kid and saves her kid. But, you know, right away from the start, I felt like this book was kind of a butt clencher. (laughs) And, yeah. <laughs> and what it really is about, sadly, is kind of the devolution of this marriage. And really, I feel like one of the things Kristen's doing with the book, and I'd be curious to ask her about this is kind of making people aware there's like this, I don't know if tropes the right word, Chris, but this idea that, you know, with same sex partners, your relationship must be so easy because you're the same sex, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, Oh, surely two women wouldn't have any, you know, thing to argue about. And surely two men understand each other, and they would never have a marriage that would end. And you know, I don't need to tell you that that's not true. (laughs) People are people, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right, exactly. And I think in some ways, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are married and of the same sex and have children together. And actually, with two women, I think in a lot of ways, it can be more complicated because one of the women is the biological mother. In many cases, in a lot of cases, that's not true. And it was an open adoption or something like that. There also can be really complicated Mm -hmm. cases where, you know, you have a friend that's the father. So our versions of family are changing and morphing, and it doesn't make your relationships any less complex, for sure you right. know exactly and that's kind of the point of this book and it was another really uncomfortable book for me to read because the the mother that is staying home she just makes decisions where she often self sabotages but some of that is also because of traumas that she suffered, one of which was that she was actually pregnant with two children and only one survived. And that is the son that they're now raising together. And we all know with traumas that aren't dealt with, they reside in the body, right? So that's part of what you're witnessing with this book. She takes on a lot with this. It was a tough read, messy and uncomfortable and she touches on depression and all sorts of things, all of that to be said, <laughs> she's a great writer. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I loved the book. I definitely wanted to see what happened at the end. so I kept with it,
1: okay. yeah again, it's
0: called "With Teeth" mm-hmm. by Kristen Arnett, out on June first
1: yeah, you I mean, one thing I can say about gay relationships is back in the day. You used to hear like, well, which one of you is the man or which one of you is the woman? And, you know, that really drives home how gender based relationships have been, you know, societal creation of gender. I think, if anything, one one thing that gay relationships has done is to help highlight that and to show that it's not a man or a woman, it's this human and that human. Definitely. And what their strengths and challenges are and, you know, put any two people together and, you know, you're in for an interesting ride usually.
0: Yeah. And with marriage, I mean, in this book definitely addresses the idea of stay at home parent versus the person who's the breadwinner and the complexity of that as well. And what happens when someone's job has more value than another and, whose job is it to empty the dishwasher and just because you're home with the child is it your job and maybe because your job isn't you know you don't earn as much more of the housework falls on you you know that's another thing that she's certainly addressing with this book yeah Interesting.
1: So. and that's a new one that one comes out in june you said
0: june 1st yes, oh, cool.
1: yeah yeah nice Well, I haven't read anything else other than lots of textbooks and lots of (laughs) library articles.
0: (laughs) I read one other novel um, called The Lowering Days by Gregory Brown. This publishes on March 2nd, so the day this episode airs. This is a beautiful book. It's a debut novel. It was a good follow-on to our read-along of Milltown because that one of the themes is that there's a it takes place in Maine, and it's in a mill town. It's two families, both fathers served in the Vietnam War. One um, became a, a hero, and the other was a deserter. And the one that became a hero, actually, his family was the family who was the owner of the mill. And as when we talk to Carrie Arsenal about Milltown, you know, the owners of the mill um, tend to be the people who build the town and are kind of revered in the sense that uh, the town becomes reliant on them for a lot of uh, the benefits, you know, to the town. He was the son that was expected to carry on at the mill, but he really put, turns his back to it because of his feelings about the mill, and he becomes a lobsterman upon return from Vietnam. The other father who was a deserter came back to town and became a boat builder. And what the two shared in common was the love for the same woman. But the man who builds boats ends up with the woman, they both have families. And the story is about those families. It's beautifully written i really enjoyed it it's told from the perspective of the youngest boy in the family of the boat builder and another thread of the story and this happens at the very beginning is that the mill is burned down a fire is lit and it's burned down and it's well maybe i won't say who lit the fire even though that comes out very so it's arson yes it's Mm. arson It comes out very in the very beginning of the book. But there's a thread also about Penobscot Indians Mm -hmm. um, who, uh, you know, live up in that territory of Maine where this book takes place. The title, The Lowering Days, refers to the paper, the local newspaper Mm -hmm. that is by that name, run by the mother, Fallon, of this boat building family. Lowering Days also refers to when you lower a grave into the ground which I didn't know until I read this book. So the themes are the main, the outdoors, there's a lot that takes place on the water, fatherhood, love, family in a broad sense, inheritance, and native people. There's a lot of um, the native language written in the book that's really beautiful to look at as well. I loved it. I highly recommend it. This book really surprised me and I got completely lost in it. It has a beautiful cover too. Let me show it to you, Chris.
1: Oh yeah. Look at that. There's a beautiful tree in winter with birds on it and then birds flying away and the tree is in water. Beautiful.
0: Yeah. And those are ravens and the, the father who's a lobsterman, raises ravens which i didn't know people did i know that people do that with pigeons but i'd never heard of that so again it's called the lowering days by gregory brown and its publication date is the day this podcast goes live
1: biblio adventures
0: did you have any
1: i had one me too you You
0: go first
1: all right well i had a Willa Cather biblio adventure This was through the National Willa Cather Center, part of their author series. Uh, Author Julie Olin Ammentorp gave a talk based on her new book, which is titled Edith Wharton, Willa Cather and the Place of Culture. So, you know, people, when they think of Edith Wharton and Willa Cather, they usually think like not two authors that would go together necessarily, because Cather is so associated with the Nebraska landscape and Edith Wharton with New York. When in reality, you know, Cather was a, a New Yorker for, you know, more than 40 years of her life. And Edith Wharton, actually, she kind of grew up in her earliest years were in France, in Europe. And then she did live in New York for a while, but then you know, left um, around, I think, just before World War One, maybe. I didn't take notes. I'm trying not to take notes and just enjoy conversations. Yeah, you're
0: doing enough <laughs> note taking in school right now, right?
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, what Julie said was that as she started studying both authors, you know, she found that they had more in common than they had in difference in a lot of ways. And her title, The Place of Culture, can also be flipped to The Culture of Place. Oh, interesting! So different ways of looking at place and culture, and I just got a copy of the book. I ordered it uh, through the Cather Center, and it just arrived today. So I do look forward to getting into that.
0: Right on! That sounds fun. I'm glad you got a chance to do some yeah. some Cather fun.
1: Yeah, and in Edith Wharton too. I love I love yeah. Edith Wharton. Good for yeah. you. I. So, what was your biblio adventure?
0: I watched from my couch. The Dig on Netflix, which is based on the 2016 novel by John Preston um, of the same name. And John Preston is the nephew of Peggy, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Pigott. And she was a junior archaeologist on the Sutton Who team. So this this movie stars Carey Mulligan and Ralph Fiennes. It's a, a based on the true story of a landowner named edith pretty and she hired an archaeologist named basil brown to excavate these mysterious mounds on her estate back in 1937 yeah and what they discovered were these anglo-saxon ship burial sites and then all of this you know cool paraphernalia that goes along with that time period wow It was a really cool movie. It was really quiet, you know, um, but interesting, very well acted. Those are two actors that I love. So I really enjoyed it and would recommend it. I don't know anything about the book except to say that um, this character, Peggy, who was a junior archaeologist, her nephew wrote the book because I think he wanted the portrayal, you know, to be correct of what happened back then. So that's all I know. Uh, You know, I haven't investigated the novel that much. But I do recommend the movie. Again, it's called The Dig. And it was on Netflix. I think I lied. I, I I turned my page and I had one other bibliodventure. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, well, this was because (laughs) of that book milk fed that I said was kind of uncomfortable for me to listen to. I decided I wanted to listen a little bit more to Melissa Broder and hear her talk about the book just to make sure there was nothing that I was missing. So there are if you're if you read the book, or you're curious about reading the book, she's on book tour right now, because that book just came out. And I watched two events with her that are available on video, and I'll put the links in the show notes. Um, One was through Books Are Magic in Brooklyn, and then the other was through Books and Books in Miami, Florida. And the thing that I'll say that I realized after listening to her talk is that I think part of what made me feel a little uncomfortable is there's like a generation gap of people who grew up more in the public gaze, I think, you know, with social media and with reality television. And so I think that was part of it that reading it I felt a little bit like I was watching and listening to things that were none of my business. But in watching Melissa Broder talk about it and talk about how open she is with her own sexuality and her own control issues with food and her, you know, own growing up years in the Jewish faith, like she's just really comfortable with telling you things and showing things on social media. So it made me feel a little old, I have to say. (laughs)
1: Well, we we all have different levels of privacy. and Right. But yeah, I totally hear what you're saying about the social media aspect of That's it. That's a
0: good point, though. I'm a very private person. So that probably was some of my level of discomfort. So anyway, I watched two events with her. And, you know, she admits to her control issues. And because of that, I thought it was interesting. She doesn't like to be in conversation with another author, which is what's pretty common now in the Zoom world, you know. So she just talks herself and does a reading and then answers questions. So very open about her answering of questions as well. Like I said, I'll put links in the show notes to those events.
1: Yeah. Wow, well, that's so interesting to not want to be in conversation with another author, but to be so open about sharing everything. Yeah. It's, I guess the control issues, though, like you yeah, said, you right? share what
0: you want and you and just the whole design of the event is you doing it the way you want to do it, I guess. Do you have any upcoming jaunts? I don't. I have one. I'm hoping to watch Nomadland on Hulu. And this is based on the book by Jessica Berder called Nomad Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. I hear it's a tough watch, but also necessary. More to report on that. I'm hoping to get the gentleman caller to, to watch with me at some point over the weekend. And then we also have an upcoming jaunt of our own, The Book Cougars, that we want to announce.
1: Yes. So this is going to be our second quarter read-along. We're announcing it now because there are two books
0: involved. Right. We're doing another joint read-along with Jenny from Reading Envy. Buckle up your seatbelts because we've got a lot to announce. Why don't we start with The Book Cougars book? We're going to read Braiding Sweetgrass." Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. This book has been out for quite some time, so it should be really easy to come by. Um, It is out from Milkweed Editions, which is a really cool press out of Minnesota. Um, And it's about Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a botanist, and her looking at nature and science Um, She's a Native American and kind of helps us understand the relationship with plants and animals and us and the earth. Really looking forward to reading this.
1: Yes, I am too. And I have been seeing a lot of people talking about that book on social media recently. So I think it might be having a resurgence.
0: It definitely is. Yeah, which is really cool also. And I think if you look at Milkweed Editions, there's an anniversary edition of it that's supposed to be really beautiful. We we own the classic edition, which is beautiful also, but they, they have another cover if you're interested in doing a little investigating. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So here are the dates, everybody. The Book Cougars Zoom discussion will be on May 30th, which is a Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to record with Jenny on June 2nd. So have your questions, comments, any of that to us by that time. And then the episode will go live on June 8th, which is episode 131.
1: Excellent. Thanks, Emily, for all those details. Now, the book that Jenny will be hosting on Reading Envy that we'll be reading and discussing with her is actually an anthology of poetry, which is definitely different for the book cougars. It is When the light of the world was subdued, our songs came through. It's a Norton anthology of Native Nations poetry edited by Joy Hardrow with Leanne Howe, Jennifer Elsie Forrester, and, and contributing editors, other contributing editors. So this is a Norton anthology. Those of you who are English majors and, you know, readers of anthologies, you know all about Norton anthologies. This one is not quite as thick <laughs> as some of them out there, but it is a big book. And it, it's, yeah, it's over 400 pages and it features poetry by Native Americans from different nations from it's, it's organized by region. So let's start with that. So like the first section is Northeast and Midwest And it starts with poems that are pre-19th century going up to contemporary poems. And then the next section is Plains and Mountains. So it's really going to give us a good overview of the poetic traditions of different native groups and different geographical locations and then different time periods. So I think it's going to be a real fascinating read.
0: Yeah. And then it's also all different sorts of poetry styles as well. So,
1: right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Just flipping through it, you know, some poems are airy looking and others are very dense. Yeah. And some are <laughs> um, long and yeah. some are short. Yep. Yeah. And so what I like, like I just flipped it open. Oh, to Gunn Allen. I love her. I've read some of her stuff before. So, but before each poem, it does give a little, like a paragraph, biography of the poet which is nice too and it mentions some of their their uh, previous books so if you really like that person's poem you can find more of their works
0: yeah yeah i'm looking forward to it and i think it'll be a really good book to discuss as well and jenny will be hosting a discussion on may 8th which is a saturday Don't have the time yet, but we'll, you know, we have time to get all those details to everybody. And we're going to record with Jenny on May twelfth. So anybody who wants to get questions or comments to any of us, please do. We're also going to have Goodreads threads on each of our individual group pages for these books as well.
1: I'm really looking forward to both of these books. I think it's really great to do another nonfiction book and then to do a poetry anthology I'm just so excited to to dive into this and it's going to be interesting to talk about it because sometimes talking about poetry is hard
0: yeah but I think that's going to be part of the discussion and we're going to be led by you know the fearless leader of Jenny who is you know she's such a smart reader so
1: totally we will be in good hands with Jenny
0: Exactly. And then extra credit. Also, I have a copy, I think both of us, Chris have a copy of Mary Oliver's, a poetry handbook, a prose guide to understanding and writing poetry. So I'm going to start to try to browse this a little bit as well. And maybe, you know, if there's some parts we read that we think would be helpful to listeners talk about that on future episodes as well. Super exciting, these double read alongs, and we're going to have all of this in the show notes. Also, there will be an email link to sign up for our Zoom chat on May 30th. And I would like to just put out there to past participants in our Zooms I'm going to try to do a better job of emailing you back when you send an email. Um, So you know that you're in the group because we can only let in a limited number of people. So if you don't get a return email and you've sent one, send another one, please. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Or reach out on on social media. Yeah, yeah,
0: please. So do you have any upcoming reads? I have two.
1: Oh, yeah. You know what? Well, you go first because I have one. So we can ping pong.
0: All right. Great. I'll just name them real quickly. One, This one was recommended to me by our buddy author Matthew Goodman. I told him I want to read more food and books. I know that's shocking to everybody. And he recommended uh, Home Cooking, A Writer in the Kitchen by Laurie Colwyn. And I just picked this up at the library yesterday. I'm so excited to dig into it. And then More Excitement and More Poetry... I have the new collection by our buddy Shulee suchetal Kwood, Trouble Can Be So Beautiful at the Beginning. This is her first book of poems. And Shulee's going to be a guest on an upse- upcoming episode, which I can't wait. What yeah, about you? I'm looking forward to that.
1: It's going to be a poetic year for us.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Just before we got online to talk with each other, I had an email from the library saying that a book came in that I had requested it's called Reading Rooms. It's edited by Susan Allen Toth and John Coghlan. It's a 1991 book. I guess it's an anthology of America's foremost writers, I say that in quotation marks, celebrating their relationship with public libraries. Oh, and how I guess cool. this was put out, you know, one year in celebration of uh, library month. I look forward to checking that out and to seeing who those foremost authors were considered in 1991.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's 30 years ago. So that's interesting. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that sounds like fun. We're both in kind of some nonfiction territory these days. It seems.
1: Yeah, you know, it's um, it's kind of interesting to to. I'm not. I didn't commit to any reading challenges this year other than my own the Willa Cather short story project that is ongoing and I, I feel a little bit freer or, or at least less guilty <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> for not getting to the challenges right. that I have committed to in the past
0: <laughs> yeah well you have a lot of uh expectations this year so I think that's good So coming up next is our interview with Dr. Charlotte Markey about her book, The Body Image Book for Girls, Love Yourself and Grow Up Fearless. The target age for this book, she said was 12 when we were talking to her. But I have to say that this book has really stuck with me since I read it. And I'm in my 50s. So it just really gave me some food for thought about my own body image, my own, the way that what I use my brain energy for, which is one of the things she talks about. And I really appreciated that she took the time to come and talk to us and share why she wrote the book and what the book can be used for in your lives. So enjoy our conversation with Dr. Markey.
1: Hi, everyone. We're so excited to be here today to talk with Dr. Charlotte Markey about her new book, The Body Image Book for Girls, Love Yourself and Grow Up Fearless. Dr. Markey is professor of psychology at Rutgers University and the founding director of the Health Sciences Center. Her previous book is Smart People Don't Diet, How the Latest Science Can Help You Lose Weight Permanently, and she's co-editor of Body Positive, Understanding and Improving Body Image in Science and Practice. In addition to being a world leading expert in body image research, Dr. Markey is also a runner, a practice she started in her forties. She's completed numerous half marathons, triathlons and a full marathon. She lives in Pennsylvania with her husband, son, daughter and a new addition to the family, pandemic puppy, Lexi.
2: Welcome (laughs) Dr. Markey. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's great to be here
0: so nice to have you here. Um, When we got our hands on this book a few months ago, we thought this would be the perfect book to talk about and a conversation to have with you after the first of the year when everyone starts, you know, these dreaded resolutions where they're going to change everything about their body in two weeks. Um, We all know how that goes.
2: Yeah, if only, right? (laughs) Right.
0: So could you tell us how you got into this field and how you came to write this book?
2: Yeah. So I think it just feels sometimes like so many things were pointing me in this direction all along. Um, Growing up, I was a dancer. So I danced at San Francisco ballet. And um, that was a really body conscious environment to grow up in. And it really, I think, heightened both my individual concerns at a young age. And ultimately then my intellectual interest in this as sort of a field. And so when I began studying psychology, by the time I got to college, this was what I wanted to study. Um, And I've been doing research on eating behaviors and body image for over 20 years now. And I started really getting more and more interested in the last five to 10 years. And in writing for not just other academics, but for more public audiences, because it's become so clear to me that how researchers and scientists think about and what we know about these topics is just not in sync very well with Mm -hmm. what is out there in public spaces. And they're just keep growing these public spaces. There's more of them, right, with social media. And so it, it becomes really hard as someone who does the science of eating and body image, to keep seeing everything around you that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess that's what then ultimately led to, to writing books for um, public audiences. But, but you know, also I have my own 13-year-old daughter. So a couple of years ago, I think, well, probably more than a couple of years ago at this point, um, we were reading a puberty book together. And we I was like lying in her bed and we were flipping through it. And and that was maybe one of the first moments I thought, you know, there's some content about body image and eating in this, but it's basically all puberty, mm-hmm. and and what is sort of the the balance of content was flipped. Like I want that book um, yeah. for my own daughter for for all the girls out there.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think a lot of the books and a lot of even the the way that schools pay attention to this issue is just to talk about how your body's going to change. And also talk about, you know, sexuality. Some schools do that. Some schools don't, you know, but this book really takes it a step further about how to be okay in the body that you grow into. Right. Yeah.
2: Really different. Yeah. So I think you're right. It's not that there's no information available that would be you know, accurate or useful, but in schools, a lot of times it's like, here are the, the food groups, right, is how food is discussed and sort of like, this is healthy, this is unhealthy in this sort of dichotomy that's not particularly useful um, and your body will change. And, and there's kind of just a lot of, I think, vague discussion in ways about bodies that it's just not addressing what girls really have questions about. Right. And you start out in the book, just talking about what
0: body image is, you know, which is, which is a term that's not used very often. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose to start there?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the many terms probably we throw around, but do we even know what it means? And I think even my own understanding continues to evolve the longer I spend time working in this area because sort of the the researcher's definition would be how people think and feel about their bodies. But really that's not separate then from a lot of our behaviors. Our behaviors are so directly impacted by those thoughts and feelings. Um, And really it's just such a huge chunk of our mental health that I feel like body image isn't really just about our appearance or our bodies. It's kind of just, how do we feel about ourselves?
1: Yeah. yeah, you know, I really liked what you were saying about um, when you're talking about the, the problems of dieting and and one of, you're the first person I've ever read who talked about how much mental space it takes yeah. for you to constantly be thinking all day long, what you should eat, what you shouldn't eat, what you're going to eat, and really just how that takes away from your own relationships, your relationship with yourself as well and that was
2: really profound. And I appreciate that. You know, I think about it a lot in raising a young girl too, because I think about it in terms of all the things I want her to go out and accomplish in the world. And seeing I feel like kids these days are just smarter than I was growing up. And <laughs> yes. I mean I'm just constantly surprised by some of the things they'll say or do. And um, you know, so listening to her and her friends when I'm, well, when I used to be able to drive them somewhere in the car or something, um, their abstract thinking skills just seem to really surpass what I would expect of middle schoolers. And I think I don't want them to lose that. You know, it's like, you kind of give up part of yourself when you spend too much time invested in what are you eating and how are you looking? And are you worried about what people are thinking about your physicality? Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a really good point. And I think part of why they are smarter than us, I agree with you, is because yeah. they have access to so much more information. Right. I mean, our information used to come from, you know, reading the encyclopedia and things like that. <laughs> no. Now they at the touch of the bu- button, you know, they have access to the world, which I think has I think I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you do talk about this in your book, has impacted your research because of particularly the area of social media, right? And the images that that young women are faced with on social media. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really tempting just to say that social media is all awful because there are so many beauty ideals and there are a lot of sort of how-to tips that we don't want young people exposed to. Um, But there is also a little bit of research to suggest it isn't all bad, that, like you said, it's a great source of information sometimes. Um, You know, I was really surprised around the election, how many young people seemed much more knowledgeable and aware um, than I ever would have been in junior high or high school about a presidential election. Um, And a lot of, they're getting from YouTube, (laughs) you know, because it's not like they read the newspaper. Mm and so I think we don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to social media. And we have to be careful because especially in the midst of this pandemic, this is how young people are connecting with each other is online for the most part. And that's safer right now. Um, but you know, the, the selling of beauty and the selling of ideals is also very real there. And we really need to work on kids' media literacy so that they kind of know to not take that stuff seriously, to not get too invested in it, to realize that a lot of it's just fake you know, right. advertising. Yeah, right. fake and
1: also Photoshopped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, every, all these <laughs> bodies that we see. Um, and I know you, you wrote too, that there uh, there's a movement of actors, actresses who are saying, I don't want my images to be Photoshopped. Yeah. Which I think is really a great movement.
2: Yeah and I think one thing that's interesting is that because kids now also have access to filters themselves and to some of those tech tools themselves that they know better how it works and so in some ways I think that there's some hope that there's this kind of the pendulum's kind of swinging back right whereas the all the photoshop and all the social media was you know really overall fairly negative now kids are, are catching up. They're getting more savvy as they, they can filter their own picture. They get it. That's what everyone's doing. Like, you know, it's easier for them to understand that that's what's going on. I think.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's Uh, a great point. And and one of the things you talk about um, was also uh, the teasing that goes on, whether it's from your family members or friends and how that impacts people's attitudes towards their bodies and themselves. And you say at one point to choose not to internalize the teasing. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and you know some proactive tips maybe um, for how not to internalize negative attitude
2: towards oneself. Yeah, I mean this is really tough, especially when you're growing up because your friends and family are kind of how you're learning about yourself. And so if you're getting negative feedback from those people, it's it's really hard, I think, to resist that and to not sort of make it your own perception of yourself. Um, but none of us need to carry that for our whole lives, right? We can choose either in the moment to reject it or later upon contemplating to think, you know, I don't really agree or I don't care, right? So... If we get negative feedback about our bodies, I did a lot growing up as a dancer. Yeah. Um, and you know, at the time I just took it as truth. And it took me decades to realize, like, well, I, I don't actually care though. Like, that doesn't matter to what I want to do in my life, which of course isn't the same thing as saying like we don't care at all about how we look. Most of us do, and that's completely normal and kind of socially acceptable i think um but do you have to be you know weef like thin well that doesn't really serve most people and so you have to i think sometimes just make choices about how you view these things you know what's really healthy for you what's going to help you to have both a healthy and happy life yeah yeah it's a good point it's but it's tricky i
0: mean chris and i were talking about this issue earlier today because you know the a lot of those um, conversations that are had with you are had from your family of origin when you're really young yes you do internalize it before you have the you know the understanding and the capacity and the maturity to undo some of that harm You know, so have you do you have any tricks of the trade other than, of course, therapy, which I'm sure helps (laughs) that that, that folks might think about as their I mean, I have to say, you know, in parallel to that question that it's one of the things I loved about this book. My my kids are now adults, but I thought, boy, if this book was out when my kids were young, I would have had it out on the coffee table, you know, it's just a great reference where they can, you know, look at it themselves and have another kind of cheerleader in their court. But if you're just getting to read the book when you're 50, (laughs) you know,
2: which is wonderful (laughs) too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's sort of part of, I feel like almost like my, my mission as a professional then is to get more of this information directly to the kids when they're young so that they can feel that sort of positive support and that sense of like you can make choices about these things you should feel empowered um and and so I hope that the book gets to a lot of girls so that before they really do internalize anything too negative or before they they feel badly and that affects maybe their experiences of what they want to do when they grow up right that they can resist some of that Um, I know it's idealistic I know it's you know, you can't change the world necessarily with with one book. Um, I'll try though. <laughs> That's a great but, start. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, right. Yeah. I'm trying to trying to keep it. Um, you know, my expectations reasonable, of course, but I think then once we're older, it gets really hard. You know, I do think that once some of that negative internalization takes place, it can be. A lot of work to undo some of that and um I don't have really easy tricks I think that it takes some time um and you know I think for me some of it became more solidified when I became a parent and I thought really carefully about what I wanted to model for my kids and what I didn't want to model and so I f- I feel still um you know there are days where of course I think like oh I feel like gross. I have overeaten and I haven't had a chance to exercise or, you know, the way everyone feels, Mm -hmm. um, when you've just been sedentary and, you know, like we all feel at the beginning of the new year. (laughs) Um, and, and there are times I think to say that out loud, right? Like, Oh, I feel gross. or I really need to go do a run today or something like that. And I don't know if I ever have, I really, really, it's, it's effortful to not say that out loud because I don't want my kids or my family to think that that's normal Mm. and I think that then the less that we say it out loud the less we think it right
1: yeah um you start reducing the amount of
2: your own self-talk right yeah. yeah and you know and that sort of works in terms of a a variety of things that many of us probably do whether it be how we think about our bodies or our exercise or eating behaviors right like if you kind of just don't let yourself engage in some of it then you will gradually do it less so um, if it's thinking i'm gonna you know skip breakfast because whatever and you think well no that's not the right thing to do and you just get in the habit of always having breakfast Um, or you know, thinking about exercise is fun and a good thing, something you enjoy and articulating that, not the sort of, oh, I have
1: to do this to feel right. Right. (laughs) Well, yeah. And that's another great point I thought you made in the book was talking about focusing on the functionality of your body, you know, and, um, as a 54 year old woman who I can't run anymore, um, but I can walk, And I've been really getting into walking and trying to really to focus on how my body feels as I'm doing it. And, um, and it's wonderful to have that focus. And especially as a younger person, I would have appreciated that advice so much to think like, you know, focus on how it's feeling now, and then maybe notice the changes that it's growing or muscles are getting bigger or what have you. Um, but I thought that's a, that's a great way to, to look at it, not what
2: you can't do, but what you can do. Right. And I think mean, too the behavioral health research is pretty compelling that if we do things because of the immediate rewards, we're more likely to keep doing them. Right. So if we think of it and we frame it in terms of like, I'm gonna go on this walk because you know, sometimes I walk my dog and I talk to my mom. So I put my headphones in, I talk to my mom on the phone, or I listen to a book. Um, and you know so i think of it in terms of like i'm i'm looking forward to getting outside and just talking to my mom or listening to my book or whatever um and it'll feel good it's good to get off my computer um so framing those things positively like that is entirely different and makes you want to do it um whereas behavioral health research suggests that if we frame it like well i kind of have to do this and if i keep doing it for like 50 years, I might live an extra year. (laughs) (laughs) This is like a really like hard way to stay with an activity, right? Right. For that extra ounce of longevity or, you know, especially when people are, you know, and speaking to a youth audience, like saying like, you you should do this so that, like, you don't get cancer someday, right? Like, that's not a compelling, like, you know, incentive.
1: Right, right. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's no context for younger people (laughs) to think
2: that way. And I (laughs) remember, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you get older, it's like everyone, you know, has cancer. And so then it does become a little more compelling. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 Well, I used to talk about my, I used to try to
0: explain to my kids the difference between like a day where they got outside and got fresh air and moved their bodies and a day that they didn't and how, you know, there would always end up being some version of conflict or something on the days that we all didn't get fresh air and move our bodies. And so I think that that mind body connection is really important and huge, you know, I'm I'm a proponent.
2: It's tricky because I think um, as a as a parent or if you're working with young people, you know if you force something, then it it loses a lot too, right? Yeah. We want to encourage, we want to offer some some motivating reasons, we want to try to present things in this sort of healthy framework, um, but you know if you force it, then it right. just becomes like a power struggle. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> Yeah.
1: Well, and you even say that in your book, which I thought was kind of radical when you're talking about exercising and moving your body um, about how, when you're young and you're in school and you have so many activities, you may not feel like yeah, doing it and that that's okay. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is, it's never too late. And I, and I made that connection kind of to you starting running at 40, you know? Um, yeah. And I know you just said you're, you grew up as a dancer and that is certainly a ton of movement every day. Um, but, you know, I like that, that you're giving young girls who read this book and boys who may read it and adults like Emily and I kind of that, that grace to have some yeah. space that, you know, you're not going to drop dead this, I let me cut that. <laughs> you're just giving people, <laughs> you're just giving people grace, uh, kids to not have to feel like they
2: have to do everything all at once. Well, I think too, you know, as a health psychologist, I really do believe that people can change and they can keep improving. And I like to say, we're just all works in progress and it pays to be thoughtful about this, but it usually doesn't pay to like oppressively discipline ourselves. That just doesn't take us where we want to go. And it certainly doesn't work to shame ourselves or others. Um, And, and so I think it's okay just to appreciate that, you know, maybe because of the pandemic, some people are not as active because mm-hmm. they like to do activities that are not possible right now. Mm-hmm. Um, if you like to walk or run, you may be more active than ever because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so few other things you can do maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are different phases in all of our lives and there are different you know, times where things will be more or less possible. And, and we just kind of have to try to get better, I think, about being understanding with ourselves, mm-hmm. being self-compassionate.
0: yeah Yeah. that's a really important one yeah yeah i I wanted to ask you about i noticed that you're um currently working on writing a i think somewhat similar book but for boys can you talk about how that's looking
2: different to you maybe than the one you've (laughs) written for girls yeah if all goes well i will finish the draft of the um body image book for boys this week actually oh Oh, congratulations I know I kept saying, I want the draft done by the end of 2020, but you know, nothing in 2020 went as as planned. (laughs) So if I can finish it the first week of 2021, that's pretty good. I figure. Absolutely. Um, But yeah, so the Body Image Book for Boys will be out um, next year, actually in 2022. And it's in some ways very similar. So there's some information that is highly overlapping with the girl's book. So nutrition doesn't actually really change for boys. So the information about nutrition um, is largely the same. I've tried to include questions that I think boys will have um, about nutrition, for example. Um, But again, the information is sort of the same. In terms of how they feel about their bodies though and um, their mental health and what they're comfortable talking about, Uh, things get kind of different. So it's really been a lot of fun to to talk to boys and young men about these issues, um, to be really digging into the research literature um, and, and even to talk to other parents of young people because I think the biggest lesson for me and one of the main points that comes out in the book is that when boys have concerns about their body, they don't articulate them. Has concerns about their body. Mm, Interesting. Because we've really feminized all of that. Mm. And they don't understand that that's the concern. So they start going to the gym all the time. But they say that has nothing to do with their body image. Interesting. Um, or they start eating a lot of protein, or they start, you know, doing these protein powders or creatine supplements, um, but they don't identify that as related to their body image or um, even disordered eating at times, mm-hmm. hmm. um, because they really don't have the vocabulary to talk about it in those terms. And so I think that um, the book for boys. You know one of the most important things about it hopefully will be to just start to make both boys and parents more aware of what's actually healthy versus maladaptive and and to work on instilling that language um, for talking about these issues that these are not just girl issues they're not just issues that girls and women deal with um, and Oftentimes, you know, it's, it's shocking to me even that, that parents support these behaviors among boys because they think, well, they're just, you know, very athletic or they want to get a college scholarship or, oh. you know, you want to spend all of your time playing soccer, but, you know, maybe that'll pay for college. Um, yeah. And, you know, if girls were doing some of these same things, we wouldn't be okay with it. it we would identify it for what it was.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's
2: really interesting. And, you know, one of the most sort of just like striking little details is all the all the boys I talk to, well, all the girls I talk to for the girls book, um, they fill out a form where they indicate that they're doing this voluntarily, that it's okay for me to use their information. I always use pseudonyms um, to protect their privacy. But then I ask if it's okay to acknowledge them like in the back of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, because I want to give them, you know, that credit to thank them. And all of the girls were fine with that. They said, yes, acknowledge me about half of the boys are not. Oh, interesting. And so I think that really speaks to this idea that like, they're not even comfortable having talked about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. The boys are very secretive. I think it's funny. I was in the eye doctor this morning and this, uh, the, all the um, receptionists behind the desk were all women, and they were talking about um, one of them had, was about to have a grandchild and uh, another grandchild, and she said, "I already have two boy you know boys, and I am hoping for a third male grandchild because girls are so hard." And I thought, wow, you're a woman, A, (laughs) you know, but B, I thought, wow. I mean, I have one of each. I have a boy and a girl and I thought, you know, they're both wonderful and they were both hard in different ways. And the boys, I think are hard because they keep everything really close to the hip, at least my son did. And particularly with their friends, like they will not give up information about their friends for anything, you know, so That's interesting that they also just didn't want that to share their name.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's great then when you see, I mean, some of the boys I started out interviewing were a little bit younger, you know, 14, 15, even 16. And I thought, wow, I'm just not going to get enough information. Like this is going to be really hard. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But it's great then when you see as they reach, you know, 17, 18, 19, the early 20s, Um, especially some who've been forced to for some reason or another to to think about these issues, whether, you know, I interviewed one boy whose sister was anorexic or I've interviewed a couple boys who've had eating disorders, Um, you know, when they've been forced to think about the issues or they're maybe just a little bit more mature a little bit more thoughtful. It's really, really cool to have those conversations and to see these sort of young feminists being being you know, developed when they talk about, you know, the pressure that they feel and they'll recognize that in some ways it's even worse for girls and they, you know, they just really, um, it's just, you know, I just love talking to young people, but, but to talk to boys who've kind of got this figured out a bit is really delightful. And I think that a lot of those stories are making it into the boys book. So that's a lot of fun, but, but it's not universal at all. Yeah. Well, hopefully the more,
1: you know, conversations happen with, with boys and boys and men together that it's okay to talk about your feelings. And I think a right. you know, part of that whole boys are easier thing is that they've, their emotional lives have been neglected mm-hmm. yeah. for centuries in this country. Right. Anyway, you know, men yeah. are not supposed to have feelings and talk about them, right?
2: They're yeah. supposed yeah. to just take action. So yeah. hence yeah. going to the gym, I guess that's how that plays out. Right. Yeah. Right. And and that's something it turns out I ended up writing about a lot more than I expected to. Just this idea of it's okay to have feelings. It's okay to be emotionally connected with people. It's okay to just be comfortable with who you are. We actually decided, um, my editors and and I, that the title of the boys' book is "Being You: colon, The Body Image Book for Boys." And we spent a lot of time thinking about this, and we realized that you know boys get all of these messages, sort of like you should be a superhero, you should, you know, be all these sort of very active things, but they're never told like just to sort of accept themselves or be who they are, and we thought that was a really important part of what we wanted to message here.
0: That's
2: wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to change
1: direction a little bit. Um, One of the surprising things in the book is your bit about um, GMOs, genetically modified organisms and food. And uh, I have a little bit of a background working for a natural food store where GMOs were the devil Um, So it was really a different take to uh, read what you had to write about that, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that, and if you've gotten any, you know,
2: pushback about that. Um, I haven't really gotten much pushback about that, I don't think. Um, So for people who haven't looked at the book... Um, I have, I believe it's a QA and in, a in one of the chapters about food, about GMOs, and also about um, I, I work in just organic versus non-organic food. And there's been a fair amount of research on these topics. And people always assume that if it's not genetically modified, and if it is organic, then that is, you know, by far superior. Um, and it turns out in terms of nutritional value, it's usually really not, um, superior in terms of taste. It very often is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I I would not deny that it's like the difference of, you know, your homegrown tomato versus some really (laughs) poor comparison that we (laughs) buy at the grocery store. Um, so it's not that there aren't differences of course. Um, but in terms of just the nutritional value themselves, it's, um, there's, not as much difference as people think, and I think too part of why I wanted to include this is people get this really all or nothing mindset often when it comes to food, which is like you, you know, should eat all organic or you should, you know, you have to have all these roots and vegetables or whatever. And you know, I think if people can afford to eat all organic and it probably will taste better, then great, go for it. Um, And if they can't, and they like frozen fruit, um, that's fine too. My husband eats frozen fruit on his yogurt every morning. And it looks disgusting to me, actually. He (laughs) microwaves it and like mashes it all together. And I don't, you know, I mean, it's easier to keep that stocked in a household though. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't really argue with that practice. (laughs) (laughs) Um. And he seems to like it and, you know, it's, he's not a big fruit eater otherwise. So it's like, that's how he gets like a really healthy serving of blueberries and other berries, usually most most days. And so I think that it's it's good for people to appreciate that that's better than nothing, right? That you don't have to be at one extreme or the other, like nothing or, you know, you're growing your own food.
1: Mm -hmm. Great, well, thanks for that. I have another hard hitting journalistic question for you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Take a breath. What kind of puppy
2: is Lexi? Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I was getting a tiny bit nervous, so I was like, oh. <laughs> "Lexi is a morky, a whatie? He's a morky. She's a Maltese Yorkie. Oh, cool. Aww, nice. And um, She's really sweet. And what actually happened was at the start of 2020, um, a rescue dog we had had for a long time, a Bichon who had always been kind of a problematic rescue dog was very precipitously going downhill we could tell and in around March the end of March early April I remember thinking like oh my god like you know it felt like the world like the sky was falling and I thought this dog like dies and all of this is happening like we're not gonna be able to handle this so I started googling for puppies because (laughs) I always need to have a plan so I was like what am I gonna do how am I gonna salvage like this, this situation. And I didn't think my husband would get on board, um, but he did fortunately. And I think he even likes her. So uh, <laughs> that's probably a lot more than you wanted to know, but we got a pandemic puppy to save ourselves from that, uh, distressing situation essentially, and help us sort of move on and cope with these stressful times. And, uh, she's that's been lovely. To-
1: well, that's great. Yeah. Well, I'm
2: yeah. glad to hear she's a good addition to the family. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's been a uh, um, a lot of fun. She likes to jump up and sit on my desk, so I have to keep oh, wow. her recording. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I think people have grown um, a lot of tolerance for Zoom meetings and things that happen in Zoom meetings. But um, I I'm glad that uh, you got a puppy that's helping the family, but that you also have a space that you can record <laughs> with, with a little <laughs> privacy when need be as well. Well, well, Dr. Markey, I want to say that we, you know, our, our listeners are in large part, you know, older folks like us. Um, I think we have a, a mixture, but there are a lot that, you know, have don't necessarily have young people in their homes with them anymore. But um, most of us are in contact with younger people. And I think this book is really important. So glad you wrote it. So glad to know that there's one coming out next year for boys. And I encourage people to buy it for people that you know, with younger girls, I think, as I mentioned earlier, it's the perfect book to just have on the coffee table for your kids to pop in and read your nieces friends children you know really buy this book it's wonderful and i loved how colorful it was it's really an attractive book to read and um and it offers hope and a lot of um help as well
2: thank you, thank you. Thank you. so so sweet of you i feel um I, feel, I was feeling this emotional response. I think like the beginning of this new year, we're all like kind of trying so hard to be hopeful. And yeah. um, it means a lot to me to hear you, hear you say that. Cause I know that you usually probably are not reading um, or talking about books with a target audience of, you know, 12 year olds. Um, so I really appreciate mm-hmm. that. And I do hope people will think about it in terms of something you can read with a grandchild or read with a niece or, um, you know, it's a really, in terms of financially speaking, it's such a small investment and I think such an important issue that it's just really difficult for a lot of people. You know, I think especially a lot of women um, like us who are in our forties and fifties and sixties and, you know, grew up um, worrying about these issues and didn't have the support or have the people saying like, you're more than this. You don't need to worry about this. Like you have another purpose in this world and it's not just how you look. So don't waste any more time on that. (laughs) Such an important message. Yes. Yeah.
1: Thank Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us. It's great to have some time with you one-on-one like this.
2: Yeah, thank you. you. And thanks for all you do. I love your podcasts. And I I wish I could read as much as you guys do. It's so impressive. (laughs) You must be so fast.
0: Well, or we just ignore our family, you know, one or the other. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right, exactly. Thanks
1: for listening to the book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at
0: bookhoogers.gmail.com. At Thanks, everyone.